And you take your Bibles and you turn with me to the book of Psalm, the 23rd Psalm that we have been walking through together. Today we're going to be talking about the fact that no matter what we walk through, no matter what happens in our lives, we can declare as that hymn does, it is well with my soul. Because of the God we serve and the fact that he is with us and guiding us. Author Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Christianity where she answers questions that the society may have about Christianity. The top ten questions that people might have about Christianity in an apologetic and an explanation way. She explains what's happening. And in one of the chapters in that book and in subsequent talks, she uses an illustration from the world of Harry Potter to show a truth about Christianity. Now, I'm going to tell you some very um, spoilery things from a book that's been out for almost 30 years. Sorry. There are seven Harry Potter books. Some of you have read every one of them. Some of you will never crack it open in your life. I almost got an amen there on that one, right? But at the end of the sixth one, there's a scene where Albus Dumbledore, who is the kind of um, wise sage of the Potterverse, um, J.D. Greer, who's a pastor, says that he is the Gandalf, Godfather, Santa Claus, and Nicolas Cage all wrapped into one. Well, there's a moment at the end of the six books where he is severely weakened because he's been battling the evil Voldemort's minions, the followers. And he's barely standing up, and in front of him is Professor Snape. Now, Professor Snape is a character that throughout the books has been a little enigmatic. You're not really sure where he stands. It's, it's um, intentional, I think, that his name is Snape because it almost sounds like snake and he's a part of the snake house and you think that he's a bad guy and you think he's good and you're not really sure but there's this moment at the end of the sixth book Dumbledore is about to die it feels like he is on his last legs he looks at Snape who is staring him in the eyes and he says his first name Severus please and in that moment it appears that Dumbledore is pleading for his life And Snape takes out his wand, points it at Dumbledore, and kills him. It looks like the ultimate act of betrayal. Moment when evil triumphs over all that is good and all that is lost. But in the seventh book, we learn something about that moment. You see, Dumbledore had confided in Snape that he was dying of an irreversible disease. And that when he died, he was going to be able to give Harry, the main character, a power that could help him defeat Voldemort, who is the ultimate evil. And in revealing that to him, he makes Snape promise that when that moment comes, that Snape will let him die. And so when we think about that moment in the book that is sixth book, 
by revelation from the seventh, we understand that that moment when he says his name and utters, please, was not save my life. It was fulfill your duty. And what felt like in that moment a tragedy and evil winning was actually the turning point of the triumph of good. I don't know if you know this or not, but J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Potter series, claims as one of her biggest influences a guy that I reference a little bit, a guy named C.S. Lewis. And it's very similar, that moment, that kind of turn, although it takes um, her about um, 700 pages more than it does Lewis to make the turn. It's very similar to in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan, the lion, is killed for the sin of another on the stone table. And in that moment, it feels like all hope is lost. C.S. Lewis was a strong believer. And you can't watch or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in that moment when Aslan is killed for the sin of another and then see the resurrection that happens of Aslan within a few hours and not be reminded of the fact that that story is based upon Jesus. You say, well, why are we talking about Harry Potter and Aslan and Jesus? Because sometimes in our lives it feels like we're stuck at the end of book six. Sometimes in our lives it feels like we're stuck at the stone table where Aslan died. Sometimes in our lives it feels like we're in the midst of the torture and the killing of Jesus without the hope of the resurrection. And we ask ourselves in those moments, if God were good, I mean really good, wouldn't things be different? And perhaps you're here today and you're in the midst of a a season or a lifetime of chronic pain and it just won't go away. And it feels like all that is around you is surrounding you is bad. Or maybe you're a parent here today that has a child that has walked away from the faith and you have been praying for and seeking for and asking God for the return of your child. Or maybe you're here and you've lost someone that you love dearly. Maybe death has taken someone from you, a a friend, a neighbor, a husband, a wife, a father or a mother or even a child. Or maybe you're here and there are relationships in your life that are broken and you've got a broken family or you've got broken friendships or there's something in your life where relationships are being torn apart. Or maybe you're just disappointed in general in life. We ask the question, how do we understand God's goodness when life is falling apart around me? Psalm 23 gives us perspective some ways on that question. I mentioned this the first week, I think. We're not really sure when David wrote this psalm. There are some that think he wrote it early in life. I don't think that. I think there's just too much experience behind what's happening here. The most common theory is that he wrote it while on the run. And one of two times in his life, either when he is on the run from Saul, you know, when God has promised him to be king and Saul is chasing after him to kill him because Saul is trying to kill the heir to the throne that God has selected. Or he may have written it when he was running from Absalom, his son, who had taken the throne that had overthrown his government and he is running from his own son that has taken over his throne and in the midst of that it is literally the deepest and darkest moments of his life that he writes this song 
when everything seems to be collapsing, when the promises of God are being questioned. And in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. What I want to do this morning is we're going to look at the pivotal changing the middle verse that happened here, possibly outside of John 3.16, the most well-known verse in Scripture. But before we do that, I want to remind us about what the entire psalm is about because we have been breaking it down verse by verse and we're going to do that today. We're just going to look at verse 4 in a moment. But I don't want us to forget the big picture of what's going on here. This is David writing a psalm and he's giving us three main big themes that all of them are also found in this one verse. And the first theme that we see in this entire psalm that's important for us to understand is that the presence of the shepherd is our life, our joy, our safety, and our fulfillment. That God's presence in our life is everything to us. It starts with the Lord is my shepherd. It's in the middle in chapter, in verse 4 of 23, it says, I will not fear why, because you are with me. Your presence is with me. And it ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be with you forever. So we have at the very beginning, we have God's presence with us. In the middle, it is reaffirmed. And at the end, it is said again. His presence is what brings our life joy, safety, and fulfillment. But more than that, it is what gives us life to begin with. Second theme that is in this, in this small little psalm is that God is always good, but the arc of God's goodness is longer than we typically expect. God is always good, but God is patient when we are not. And He is able to see the end from the beginning. And the third thing that this overall thing is reminding us and that we need to understand is that God uses our waiting to work in us. And so David, in writing this psalm, is saying, listen, whether he's on the run from Absalom or he's on the run from Saul or even if he's young and writing this out in the field, what he's saying is, our God is with us. He's my life, my joy. And even though I may walk through difficult moments, I know that ultimately God is good and he will bring together those things for my good, for my benefit. And that in the meantime, I want God to work on me and develop me into the person that he has called me to be. Psalm 23, 4 says, even when I go to the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. First word that's highlighted there is even. That's not a word I normally highlight in this kind of moment when we spend some time. But no word in Scripture is ever just thrown in there. And this is a particular word in the original language that means yes or 
in addition or continuing down that path. It's a transition word. It's a connecting word. And you have to understand it connects us to what came just before it. And I know this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, it's on your phones or your tablet, or you've got it open in the Word of God in a, in a physical copy. If you look right before this is what we talked about two weeks ago. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for His namesake. Yes, when I go through the darkest valley. What He's saying here is even when, or God leads me down the righteous path And sometimes that's going to be through the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to lead me down the path for His righteous, for His namesake, for the glory of His name, for the spread of His kingdom. And what we have to understand is that sometimes those paths will lead into dangerous, difficult, hurtful places. Following God does not mean that our life will have every obstacle removed from it. God is always with us, but sometimes He allows and sometimes He directs us in the paths that are difficult and hard. The connecting word here, yea, is the way it used to be in the old King James Version, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When I was a kid, I always thought that was a weird word to have there. Because when I was a kid, yay was something you yelled, right? Like you were excited about. Yay! Like what Tennessee's been yelling during most games, but not yesterday. Yay! Right? What the whole world yells when teams like Tennessee and LSU go, Russell, beat Alabama. Yay! Right? Right? And I was like, why are you saying yay though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death? But that's not the word here, alright? There are other places in Scripture tells us to Count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. But that's not what's here. What's here is God leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And sometimes, yea, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow, even when that path that God has directed me on is leading me in a direction that goes down a difficult, dark place, even then I will fear no evil. It's become popular in American Christianity, especially at times, to proclaim that if you have enough faith in God, if you have enough faith and you're living your life like God wants you to live, you'll never face difficulty. That may sound great. It is not biblical in the least. Does God bless us? Yes. Does God protect us? Yes. But sometimes that arc is longer than we want and it makes us go through things that we would never have chosen for ourselves. In fact, he says, yea, though I walk through. There's particular words here that are mentioned that mean a journey. It's not a stop and dwell in this place. It is not a set up camp kind of place. It is a walk through. Even when I go through, it is a passage way. In fact, the understanding from this verse is that the valleys of our lives, no matter how deep and how long they may be, no matter how narrow or come, that the valleys in the lives of believers are always through passages and not our final destination. They're always the thing that we're walking through. They're the things that we're going through. He could have chosen words that said, when I'm sitting in the valley, or when I'm standing in the valley, but he didn't. He says, when I am walking through the valley, when I'm on my way in life and I get to a difficult place, it is something I'm walking through. Robert J. Morgan is an author who wrote a book called The Red Sea Rules about 
Um, when you're standing on the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming at you and there is a massive sea, what do you do in the midst of that? And in the Red Sea rules, he talks about that one of the things the Israelites had to come to understand and trust and believe about God is that he who led you into it will lead you out of it. And if God has led us into a valley of difficulty, of desperation, of despair, of darkness... The one who led us in is the one we need to depend on to lead us out. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now in our translation it says the darkest valley. That's an appropriate translation. It's just not as poetic as what they used to say, right? When you think about the valley of the shadow of death, it literally is a place when they were traveling and taking sheep, they would have walked through valleys. Why? Because it's not as difficult to walk through valleys as it is on mountains. There's also sometimes at the bottom there would be riving, uh, there would have been water that would have been flowing, there would have been some vegetation, but also because it sometimes was the most direct path. Now they do think there's a particular, scholars think there's a particular um Valley that David is describing here. It's called the Wadi Kelt and it's near Jerusalem. And in the time of Jesus, in the time of David, it had a nickname that was that it was called the Way of Blood. Because it became notorious for being a place that bandits and wild animals would attack traveling parties. It was a narrow way. In fact, Most people feel that when Jesus is talking about the Good Samaritan, when he talks about traveling along the path and people coming out, that he was describing a place where the people around there would have known he was talking about Wadi Kelp, the valley of the shadow of death. It was narrow and steep and had sharp bends and frightening ledges. David would have known it well. He would have been out there because sometimes in in leading sheep, he would have led him through that. Walking to Jerusalem from Jericho, you would have led him through that. In fact, one of the interesting things is, if that is the location for the Valley of the Shadow of Death, as described here, that they would have had in their mind of, of a dark place, of a place with unknown, a place with danger, that Matthew 18.21 tells of Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, and the route that it describes would have taken him directly through the Wadi Kelt, or the Valley of the Shadow of Death. He says, even when I'm walking through that, Y'all have heard this too, that it's important that we realize that the word shadow is used here, that it is not the valley of death. It is not death valley. It is literally the valley of the shadow of death. I read an illustration this week that I thought was kind of cool in this. They were talking about standing on a train platform next to a high-speed train in Japan And he said, I started, he said, for some reason I was reading Psalm 23 while I was standing on the platform waiting for the train to go by. And he said, I didn't even think about the amount of trust I had that I stood on a platform while a train sped by me. He said, but as it did, we were standing out in the sun. And he said, the shadow got to me before the train did briefly. And he said, I got hit with the full force of the shadow of the train. It was a little different than getting hit with the full force of the train. Right? Anybody ever stood on the, a sidewalk and you've got a car speeds by? Maybe you're getting ready to step out and you step back and the shadow hits you? 
no damage done by the shadow, but the car or the train would do major damage. And this author said that what we need to realize that when it comes to death in our life, death for a believer is always a shadow. Because Jesus has taken the full brunt of the death that we should have died. In previous generations, there was a popular genre of literature that we don't have anymore, really. It was deathbed confessionals of Christians. But doesn't that sound like a joyous book to read? 1825, there was a book published called Deathbed Scenes, The Christian's Companion on Entering the Dark Valley. All of God's people said, what? Right? And in there is a guy named Joseph Berry. His wife was dying. And in her particular story, it's interesting because she quoted over and over again Psalm 23. It became her thing. She requested her husband preach that at her own funeral. She asked for a hymn to be made about that particular psalm. She would quote various parts of it as she was dying. And on her last day, as she is literally entering into heaven, these are the last five words she spoke. Valley. Shadow, home, Jesus, peace. And then she died. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no danger. None. In the New Testament, one of the most amazing things about the apostles of Jesus Christ, the disciples that would follow in the book of Acts and other places, is they did not have fear when everyone else would think they should have. The first martyr in Acts chapter 7 is Stephen. You remember that story, right? He's getting stoned to death. And in the midst of that, instead of whimpering in fear, he stands in bravery and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Scripture time and time again describes Paul being imprisoned and boldly proclaiming the gospel in the midst of that. Story after story in the New Testament of apostles standing firm for the Lord. But they didn't stop in the book of Acts or when the New Testament ended. Stories like Polycarp who told while standing in the midst of a cathedral of a coliseum of people that were there to martyr him for believing in Jesus Christ and declared, bring on the fire and stood firmly in its midst. To believers today all over the world that are standing firm in their faith, one of the key elements that you read about in these stories is that they faced their future without fear. Scripture doesn't command anything as much as it commands us not to be afraid. It is again and again repeated over and over. And we live in a time when we have probably never been more protected medically, when we haven't been more able to protect ourselves in other ways, and yet people live in a state of fear today according to research that is unmatched in recent years. Scripture says that we don't have to fear. And it gives us the reason. I want you to notice a shift that happens. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no danger. Why? 
What does it say? You tell me. It says, for you are with me. You might notice the shift that happens in verse 4 that hasn't been in the first three. In the first three, it's the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But then it's he lets, he leads, he renews, he leads. Now, quick English lesson here, grammar lesson, with apologies to those that actually teach it. That's a third person pronoun. That's someone else. That's he. Notice what happens in verse 4 and for the rest of the psalm. I will not fear why, for you. You is a more personal understanding. It has gone from describing the Lord to talking to the Lord. And in this moment, he says, whether he's in a deep valley at this moment or he is struggling or not, he says, you are with me and you being with me makes all the difference in the world. Everything in my life can be settled if you are with me. Moses told the Lord that he is not going to the promised land if God doesn't go with him because where you are is where I want to be. And if you're not there, I don't want to go. In other words, the promised land is not the promised land if you aren't there. And in the midst of this, David writing this psalm says, the reason that I don't have anything to fear. And David had grown up in a place, we know from Scripture, that he had been attacked by bears and lions. And he had been attacked by Saul, the king. He had been attacked by multiple fronts, by military foes. And yet in the midst of all of that, his battle with Goliath, he says, I will not fear in any moment in my life. Why? Because you are with me. And then he talks about the two instruments that a shepherd would have with him at all times. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod would have been a shorter kind of implement that they would have used. In fact, um, I read this week that one of the prods of shepherds, even till this day, they're out in places without a lot of technology or what's going on. One of their prods is how accurate they can be in throwing their rod. Hard, hitting things. And what the rod was used for, first of all, was an authority thing. It was to remind the sheep of who was in charge. It also was to keep the sheep in welfare and make sure that they would examine them and count them. There's descriptions of shepherds using the rod. When a sheep would go by, they would count them. They have to pass under the rod. And then the shepherd would pull back their wool to look for anything that might be there, any parasites or illness or problems. They would consistently do that. Look under the coat, inspect each one. It's the Psalm 139 moment, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. They would use it for protection. They literally would have thrown it at animals to ward them off. Uh, Most scholars feel that, you know, when David warded off the lion or the bear, that he used his rod partially as part of that, that that would have been what he did. It was also used for discipline. To be able to keep them in check. He mentions the rod and the staff. There may be nothing that identifies the shepherd outside of a sheep more than the staff. And the staff, while the rod was a blunt instrument that could be used with force, the staff generally was a more gentle tool. He would use the crook of it to pick up a sheep, uh, especially a newborn 
sheep, a lamb, and would place it next to the mom. He would do that instead of using his own hands because if the mom smelled the smell of the shepherd on their own sheep, they might reject the little lamb. And so he would pick it up with the crook and place it next to the mom. He would use it just to kind of guide the sheep, just to kind of push off to the side or keep them there or pull them back. Or he would use it to pull them out of particularly dangerous situations, getting stuck in a thicket and underbrush. And in the midst of that, he would pull them back. He would pick them up. He would tend their needs. It was a gentle kind of moment. What he says here is, God, while I'm walking through whatever I'm walking through, the difficult moments of my life. I will trust in you because you are with me and I know you're going to correct what needs to be corrected. You're going to ward off what needs to be warded off and that you're going to gently pick me up and tend to me in the midst of that. You are my God and I will trust in you. So what do we pick out of this one verse? What are the lessons for us today? Three simple ones. None of these are going to blow you away. They're three simple ones. The first one is this. Sometimes God's path will lead us through difficult paths. Sometimes God's way will lead us through difficult paths. Sometimes intentionally He lets us, He leads us to places. Sometimes He allows us. Sometimes He allows us to walk into paths on our own, allows things to come into our lives, and sometimes He intentionally pushes us that direction. The question that we have to ask in the midst of those moments is, will we complain and walk away? Or will we seek of the Lord and ask what it is that we should learn in the midst of it? Second lesson that we can learn today is this. We are called to live without fear. In life, we are called to live without fear. Can I tell you, That everything just about in your life, outside of your faith, is attempting to get you to react and live and spend based on fear. And yet God calls us to live without fear. Let me also just say that living without fear doesn't mean being dumb and reckless. God has given us common sense. We need to use that. But it does mean that we ought to be able to live in a way that glorifies Him without worrying at all times what's going to happen or what could happen or living in worry and fear. Many of you know that a few years ago, we we gave up like cable TV. We stream stuff. It's not like we gave up TV. We just, we don't, we don't have, we don't stream all that kind of stuff. Okay. Part of the glory of that is I don't see many political ads. And all God's people said, I mean, I know that the election's Tuesday. I voted. Somebody I saw yesterday said you ought to be able to opt out of political ads once you voted somehow. Right? Like once it's done, I'm opting out. And I'm, it doesn't matter which side you're on. They're all of them. But most of the ones that you watch are... The world is going to end if the other side wins. Whatever the issue may be, the donkey tells you the elephant's going to destroy the world and the, and the elephant tells you the donkey is. And they're breeding fear. 
And whatever happens this coming Tuesday in places all over America, half the people are going to think that it's over. Not in a good way. Can I just say that if you're a believer and the ultimate destiny of our world you think rests in Tuesday, then you have misplaced your understanding of who's in control. Now, I don't mean, I mean, go vote. If you haven't voted, go vote. Maybe they'll let you opt out of the political ads after that. I mean, vote your convictions. I mean, advocate for what you think needs to be happening. But ultimately, it is our future. Our safety is not in the hands, ultimately, of any governmental agency or actor. Fear not. And here's the most important thing we learned from this passage again. And it's just so good. And we miss it so much. And that is God is with us. I will not fear because you are with me. And here's what's crazy about that. We have more of a sense of the reality of the presence of God in our lives than David ever could. Because David lived on the other side of Jesus. Who came and dwelt among us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment, in this time, that your will would be done. That you would speak to us and allow us to know what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.